Thank you, Mrs. Dixon. We appreciate that. Along with God's love and forgiveness, there's grace. Towards this next song, it says, Your grace is enough for me. Amen to that. It's not a question of whether we think we need to be twinsies. We do need to be twinsies. Three. Okay. <laughs> Turn me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41. We're going to continue reading through the book. Our reading through the book of Isaiah. Stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you will. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 41. 
says this, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer him who, who strikes the anvil, saying of the, soul, of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who wage war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob. You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountain and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and, sh and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they, that they may see and know May consider and understand together that the hands of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the earth, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, and as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we may know, and beforehand that we may say, he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say in Zion, Behold, here they are.
and I have given to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among these, there is no counselor, who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty. May God bless you. a new song today. Um, I sang it uh, for the uh, concert of prayers here a few months ago. And I figure since uh, it's the Easter season, we're getting, getting, great, getting ready for that glorious day when he arises. It says, By his wounds we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, by his wounds we sing that with us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. We are healed by your sacrifice in the life By your grace we are saved, we are saved. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, by his wounds we are healed.
gentleman could come forward for the offering, please. chapter in the jam-packed tiny book of Jonah. It's hard to believe, you know, the more I the more I learn and the more I talk about Jonah that this fantastic book of the Old Testament is only 48 verses total in the whole book. Reading through some of Isaiah as we've been doing, I found that there are several chapters in Isaiah that are more than 48 verses in the chapter. So, um, 
for all of its brevity, though, the book of Jonah teaches us a tremendous amount about our human nature, about our imperfections and our our blatant sinful nature. Um, I find it encouraging to think that even a prophet of the Lord can be so human, so so just like us. Anyway, let's start with uh, let's start with the Word of God. If you're able, turn with me to the chapter of chapter 4 of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4, starting at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Before I start, I'd like to pray and ask for God's help. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for giving me this opportunity to come and to, to preach your word to the people of our church, Father, and just be with me today and help your word come through me to them. And put me out of the way, Father, and just use me in a way to glorify you. Watch over these people, Father, their families and friends and everyone else in this town, and just be with all of us, Father. Help those that are lost to find their way to you help us that that have found our way to you, help others along the way, Father, and give us the courage and and the strength to do that. In all things, let your will be done. As it seems in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what a roller coaster this short book is. (laughs) D.A. Carson starts the chapter on Jonah 4 in his commentary with this statement. The delight we might feel at the happy outcome of chapter 3 is completely lost on Jonah. Chapter 4 opens by completing the sketch of his character in such unfavorable colors that it is shocking. In doing so, however, the author puts in place an important element of his book's message that enables it to call the most self-assured reader to self-examination. During these sermons and and then this reading of this uh, word this morning, have you seen yourself in Jonah? Have you ever wondered why God saved someone that you thought didn't deserve it? 
murderer that is on death row and has found Jesus, a drug addict that was begging for change on a corner and now has found his way into our church for morning service. It's so easy to judge that person and simply brush off their newfound Christianity as fake or too late. But are we not all sinners? Carson continues, those who see in Jonah only the antithesis of their own essentially irreproachable theology, or who assume that their knowledge of God has prevented mistakes and corruption of this magnitude, need to see, as we all do, that the ethic of chapter 4 is both a mighty deep and glorious height that must drive repentance and trust in divine forgiveness. Jonah suffers from something that I also struggle with, as I believe most of us do every day. Something that some would say is the backbone of all sin, pride. Jonah was a proud Jewish prophet. Being so, he felt that he knew who should be saved and who shouldn't. I think this is something that we can all relate to. As I have brought up in my other sermons on Jonah, and what I believe is the underlying point of this book, is that we as Christians tend to think that we should decide who is saved. Look with me at the Gospel of Matthew, beginning of chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1, reads, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let's stop there for a moment and think about that. What is Jesus telling us here? Is he saying that if we don't judge others, that we will not be judged? Of course not. It would be too easy, right? We all face judgment, each and every one of us. What he's saying is that none are sinless, therefore none should judge except he who is perfect and blameless, namely Jesus Christ himself. This truth becomes clearer in the next few verses, which are often quoted, but not nearly embraced enough. Continuing on in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 7, Starting at verse 3, Jesus continues, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. How many of us have quoted that set of verses to someone else? I know I have time or two. What's funny is that when we quote that verse, it's almost always as a self-defense of someone trying to hold us accountable for the log in our very own eye, proving that although we can quote the scripture, we either have no idea what it means or flat out don't care. Honestly, I'm not sure which is worse. It's interesting to note that in the, it says the log in your eye, but in, if you read the, uh, in the Greek, the word is translated as being a load-bearing beam. So anyone that's done construction can imagine what it would be like to have a load-bearing beam like one of these sticking out of your eye. And here you are telling somebody they got a little, a little dust in their eye or something. Now, I'm not saying to go around and never care about what our brothers and sisters are doing in their lives. Anyone that knows me knows that I place a ton of value in accountability. I'm a firm believer that the main thing missing from the lives of people who 
study the Bible religiously, yet don't regularly come to church as accountability. As humans, it is impossible to hold ourselves 100% accountable. It takes others living around us closely and closely observing our lives to see the things that we are doing wrong and to point them out. For some of us, it's our spouses that do a really good job at that. And our kids are also very good at pointing out the things we do wrong. I believe Elisa corrected just the scripture reading four or five times during the... Anyway. While this sounds like it directly contradicts Jesus' command for us not to judge others, I believe when Jesus refers to judging someone, he means it as thinking you are above them or better than them. That is not mutual accountability. We are all sinners. We all make mistakes. We all do selfish things. We have to remember that and approach each other as equal sinners in an honest and loving way. Our kids are great at this. Just yesterday morning, while driving to Curtis's birthday, in the middle of a hurricane, it seemed like, my wife and I were arguing about how fast to go on the highway. And Layla from the back seat says, Y'all stop it, you sound just like us. Talk about an eye-opener. We must learn to lean on each other to make sure that our walk in Christ is staying true. Imagine what a fellow believer would be saying to Jonah while he is sitting up on that hill waiting for the destruction of Nineveh. Our first application follows the same line of thought. Jonah chapter 4, the first verse states, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Who is Jonah to be displeased? Who does he think he is to be angry at the creator of the universe? He did what God told him to do, and it worked. It worked amazingly. 120,000 people repented and came to Christ, came to God. Shouldn't he, as a prophet of God, have been amazed and exalted, exalted of God for his amazing kindness and compassion? An exponential reflection of the kindness and compassion that he himself had just recently shown Jonah, or he had just recently shown Jonah himself. Look with me at the epistle of Paul to the Romans. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Romans 9, 14 says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Jonah was actually hoping for the destruction of Nineveh, which becomes apparent later in the chapter when he goes up on a hill to watch. He wanted these people to die, and not only that, he wanted to watch it happen. Here Jonah is a prophet of God Almighty himself one who was just saved by miraculous means and then traveled over 700 miles to come and preach the word of God. And yet he is ready to sit back and eat some popcorn, watching over 100,000 people burn to death. How twisted is that? Why is it so hard for us to see evilness and sin in our own hearts? The kindness of those among us are capable of atrocity. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not just talking about all the people in town that decided not to come to church this morning. That's talking about us, the ones of us that are sitting here today. It's talking about me, about Justin and Albert, about Wayne, about Bree, even Jane. That is why accountability amongst church members is so paramount. We must make sure that we are staying as true as possible to the path that Jesus laid out for us. I'm telling you, loved ones, it is so easy to stray. I've recently finished reading the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, which on a side note, I think everyone should read if you haven't read it. Amber, it's awesome, right? Um, it's a very challenging book. Uh, be ready if you do read it, because it will tear down your assumed innocence like the Berlin Wall. This book consists of letters from an experienced demon named Screwtape to his nephew Wormwood, and every page shows how easily it is for Satan and his underlings to lead us away from God. We always see the cartoons of someone with an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other shoulder, both with input about decisions we make in our lives. I never realized until I started reading this book how true that is. God gives us free will to make our own choices. Satan tries to bend that will in order for us to stray. The main point of the book is to illustrate just how easily that can be accomplished. And I will tell you this, loved ones, it is easier than you can imagine. Which is why we must all remain strong in the faith and not be afraid to hold each other accountable. Take Jonah, for example. Here he is orchestrating one of the greatest repentance stories of history, and yet he feels like a total failure to the point that he is angry with God. This is a prophet of the Lord doing the Lord's work witnessing a miracle, and he is so full of pride that he would see these people being destroyed as a great victory. Would you be happier if all the Muslims in the world began to believe in the gift of grace through Jesus Christ, or if God simply wiped them off the face of the earth? What about murderers in prison? My brother recently spoke at a prison full of some of the worst criminals in the state of Texas. And when he finished, 21 of them came up and gave their lives to Christ. Now, do you think that Matt was angry with God for accepting their repentance? Of course not. It seems like such a foreign concept. Yet, that is where we are with Jonah. He would have been smiling from ear to ear as God rained fire and brimstone down from heaven, all because of his pride. In the next section, we'll hear a rant of a pouting prophet and God's simple answer. Look with me at verses 2 through 4 of Jonah chapter 4. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said? Is this, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? It's obvious that Jonah knew the power of our God, which is why he ran away in the first place. We see the same thing reflected in many other, many other parts of the Bible. Exodus 34, 6 states, The Lord passed before them and proclaimed, The Lord, the God, a God merciful 
and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We also see this repeated in Joel, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, in a way that is amazingly similar to what took place in Nineveh. Joel 2, starting in verse 12, says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And look with me in the book of Nehemiah, one of the most dramatic examples of God's mercy. Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 16, says, But they, our fathers, acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to slavery in Egypt. But you are God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Obviously, Jonah knew of these things. He repeated them nearly verbatim to God himself. Being a prophet, he was presumably well-versed in the books of Moses. Jonah knew that if not for this very love and graciousness that God was showing the Ninevites, his own people, the people of Israel, would have been destroyed in the wilderness or at best led back into Egyptian slavery. Yet Jonah is unable to see beyond his hate for them. All he can think about is how much he wants them to die and face eternal judgment. Haven't we all been in Jonah's place before? A news story about a parent who abuses or even murders their own child? Hearing a story about a rape that took place or something a little more uh, closer to home when someone cuts us off in traffic. We're human. We're not God. And it's painfully obvious every day. Even though we were created in His image, in a lot of ways we are the exact opposite of Him who made us. Most of us are quick to anger and restricted with love, ready to see swift justice, sometimes without any solid evidence. I don't know about y'all, but I'm relieved our eternal soul is judged by God and not by another human. The fact that Jonah was so upset by the possibility of God not destroying the city that he would rather die than continue to live shows the depth of his hate for these people. As we continue, we will see how Jonah reacted to God's question. Look at me with verses 5 through 8. Jonah 4, starting in verse 5, says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. 
what's going on here? Jonah prayed to God, telling him how disappointed he was with God, possibly showing these pagan Assyrians grace. And what does he do next? He goes outside the city and sets up a booth for himself to see what would happen. Jonah had done what the Lord commanded him to do. And he could have just started the long trek back home. 700 plus miles he had to walk. But he didn't. Instead, he goes out of the city, finds a nice spot up on a hill, builds himself a small shelter so that he can hang out and see what God is going to do to the people of Nineveh. The Bible doesn't tell us how long Jonah watched before the Lord appointed the plan to provide Jonah shade. But I think he had already sat there for most of the 40 days waiting to see what God would do. So while Jonah sat there in the midst of his hatred, waiting for the holy wrath of God to rain down on Nineveh, the only wrath that God sent was on Jonah himself in the form of a scorching east wind and blazing sun. The real question here is, did Jonah think that because he was angry with God, God would really change his mind and destroy the city? In my studies on this chapter, I found a quote from Dr. John Piper that helps relate Jonah's anger with our current state. Piper says, What gives so much force to the impulse of anger in such cases is the overwhelming sense that the offender does not deserve forgiveness. That is, the grievance is so deep and so justifiable that not only does self-righteousness strengthen our indignation, but so does a legitimate sense of moral outrage. It's this deep sense of legitimacy that gives our bitterness its unbending compulsion. We feel that a great crime would be committed if the magnitude of evil we've experienced were just dropped and we let bygones be bygones. We are torn. Our moral sense says this evil cannot be ignored, and the Word of God says that we must forgive. Have any of you experienced moral outrage? heard about something on the news that was so terrible that it made you sick, or possibly even something that happened to you personally, how would you feel if they were let go scot-free? How should we feel? I don't know how many of y'all know this, but um, about eight or nine years ago, um, my nephew was murdered by his dad. Uh, he was only a month old, and um, it was a terrible thing. Uh, we were all very, very uh, mad about it. And it was that was before we started coming to church. We were didn't know what to do with this anger. And um, it took a long time. You know, it's interesting. My dad, I think, was the first one to, to put it in a God perspective. My, my sister had named uh, her son Christian, coincidentally. And um, it was a the situation scene was a bad situation. And I, Dad was the first one that told us that he feels like God sent Christian here to get Angel out of that situation. And once we started coming to church and learning about God's forgiveness and how we're expected to forgive, um, I was able to forgive him in my heart for what he did. I haven't forgiven him face to face yet, but. It's just an example of, you know, that took me a long time. And um, all of us that were involved in that, all of my family, I think it's, it, it's something that's it's hard to get over. And it takes a long time to, 
to see. Uh, but if you think about it, if you take the culmination of our lives in a sin that's every little sin, you know, hopefully, you know, none of us have done anything that um, atrocious, but if you take the culmination of our sin throughout our lives and add it all up, to imagine that God forgives us for all of that really helped me put in perspective that I should be able to forgive anybody for anything. Back to Jonah, it's possible that he thought that Assyrians the Assyrians would backtrack on their repentance. Backtrack so quickly that God would go ahead and destroy the city at the end of the 40 days. Yet neither of these things happen, and God uses a simple plant and worm to impress the lesson on Jonah. I love how simply God illustrates his point when he could have just told Jonah, it's going to end up this way because I said so. How many times as parents we just say, because I said so. How, how well does that work? <laughs> God uses a real-life illustration to make his point apparent. Jonah loved the plant just as God loves us all. Then God appointed that hungry worm to destroy what Jonah loved. And on top of that, added the scorching wind and blazing sun. It caused Jonah again to say that he would, would be rather for him to die than live. The application I'm trying to make here is just like a good parent. God uses a situation to illustrate his point. He does this for us still, and just like Jonah, it typically isn't until the point is made that we can see how our Father's divine plan was laid out. And just in case Jonah didn't see the bigger picture through his experience with the plant and that ravenous worm, God spells it all out for him in the last three verses of the book. Look with me and let's unpack the culmination these amazing 48 verses in the Old Testament. Jonah 4, verses 9 through 11 say, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do do well to be angry, for the, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? What a wonderful example for us all of our Creator also being our Father. He already made His point using the castor bean plant, an extremely hungry worm. But Jonah still didn't get it. So in His graciousness, He spells it all out for Jonah. All of the parents in here will be able to relate to this. Even when something happens to a kid that we think will surely teach them the lesson, we still end up having to explain it to them. When our oldest daughter, Lexi, was in junior high, uh, she started getting weak during basketball games. At one point, she nearly passed out, and we took her to the hospital and found out that she was hypoglycemic, which means that her blood sugar levels can drop dramatically if she's working or doing anything, you know, sports, anything that gets her heart rate up. It was scary for all of us, but um, including Lexi, she was very frightened when she, was, when she first found out, but of course, Lexi being Lexi wanted to keep playing sports and we couldn't slow her down. Not even a year or two later, she's in high school and we were having to pay attention, go to every game and pay attention to her and practices and watch for the symptoms for her because she would just keep going and 
until we noticed her getting spotty or starting to shake, and then we would have to force her to eat a candy bar or something sometimes, even though she experienced the consequences, and yet we would still have to tell her, probably still have to now, that sometimes you need a candy bar. <laughs> you would think that the experience would have been enough to change her mind and to change her eating habits and to know the symptoms and to know what to look for. And yet, just as we are all human, she needed us as her parents to explain the situation to her several times, over and over and over. This all comes back to love. The book of Jonah contains layers and layers of God's love. God used Jonah to show his love to the pagan sailors in chapter 1. God shows his love for Jonah the first time by appointing a great fish to swallow him. Even when he was running from God, and forced the Ninevites or the pagan sailors to throw him overboard when he could have just repented. This great fish swallowed him up and transported him back to the beach and just gently spit him out. And God shows his love for the Ninevites by sparing them after they repented. And finally, even though Jonah ran away and got angry enough to tell his creator to simply kill him out of pure hate for these people, God pours out his love on Jonah form of patience. For hundreds of years, people have wondered what happened after that cliffhanger of a statement by our Heavenly Father. Yet there's nothing else in the Bible that tells us what actually became of Jonah after this. All that we do know is that the book of Jonah ends with the curveball from God and Jonah walks right into it. After Jonah admits that he is angry enough to die because of a plant being eaten by a worm, God brings the whole lesson to bear. And although most of this book portrays Jonah as the bad guy, the fact that Jonah wrote it down or told someone else about his experience and didn't spin it in a way to make himself look like the good guy proves that the lesson that God taught that day on the hill east of Nineveh to a pouting prophet really sank in. Jonah could have just walked back to Israel and proclaimed how his preaching out against Nineveh brought on a revolution of repentance. So much so that God relented from the disaster that he had planned for them. It's very easy to imagine Jonah writing this account with himself as the hero. A prophet that saved the lives of 120,000 people. Yet he is brutally honest about what actually happened. Why? Why would he be so honest? Because at some point he realized what God did through him and he wanted to give God the glory that he deserved. The lesson that God gave to Jonah probably didn't immediately sink in. It is very probable that he headed home sulking about God not destroying his enemies like he had done so many times before. It is apparent that at some point it dawned on him God was showing him with the plant and the worm. Was it during the 700 mile walk home? Or after that, we will never know this side of heaven. But the fact that he gave us this story in such an amazingly truthful way says it all. I want y'all to remember Jonah when you're giving your own testimony to others. Don't be afraid to give them the details that make you more human. And more importantly, the details that glorify God in your life. One of the worst things that we can do as Christians is portray ourselves to 
others as ultra-righteous non-sinners. If we aren't honest with ourselves, how can we ever expect to bring others to Christ? As I wrap up this series on Jonah, I pray that through these 48 short verses, the Word of God has touched your heart in a way that drives you to pursue Him. I found this quote uh, from C.S. Lewis. I just I love this quote. It says, C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I think that says it all. When you've accepted Jesus into your heart and have been converted by it, this world takes on a completely different life. If you have not asked Jesus to take you over your life and live in your heart, please, I beg you, don't let another minute pass without doing so. None of us know when our time on this earth is in. Um, it says in the Bible, he will come like a thief in the night. As I've said in other sermons, don't let that, don't let that coming be, uh, be a, sad, a sad night for you. Because even though you know you're going to heaven, you, all you can think of is the people that you didn't take the time to tell about Jesus. During this hymn of invitation, come up to these steps pray to God that he may become the master of your life. I would love for you all to be transformed and start authoring your own transformation story. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jonah, Father, and for the story of your work in him and his life, Father. And just let us all see a little bit of ourselves in Jonah. Keep us from prideful interpretations of ourselves, Father, that make us feel like we know who is supposed to go to heaven and who is supposed to know you, Father, and that we know who deserves to know you. Give us the courage, Father, and the strength to tell others about you and to lead the lost to you. Be with everyone here and everyone in this small town, Father, that isn't thinking about you this morning and just help them to find a way to you, Father. We all love you so much. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Please stand. so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise just to know the saith the Lord Jesus Jesus how I trust him how I proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. I'm so glad I learned to trust.
trust him, precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that he is with me, will be with me till the Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Well, that concludes our service. We're glad you joined us today. We hope you have a blessed week and hope to see y'all back here next Sunday. Mike, we appreciate that message you gave us. We're going to end out with uh, I Shall Not Be Moved. I shall not be, I shall not be moved. I shall not be, I shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's planted by the
Thank you, Mrs. Dixon. We appreciate that. Along with God's love and forgiveness, there's grace. Towards his next song, it says, Your grace is enough for me. Amen to that. It's not a question of whether we think we need to be twinsies. We do need to be twinsies. Three. Okay. <laughs> Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41. We're going to continue reading through the book, our reading through the book of Isaiah. Stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you will. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 41. 
says this, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer him who, st- who strikes the anvil, saying of the, sol- of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who wage war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountain and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. That they they may see and know, may consider and understand together, that the hands of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel has created. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the earth, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, and as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we may know, and beforehand that we may say, he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say in Zion, Behold, here they are. 
and I have given to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among these, there is no counselor, who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty. May God bless you. introduce a new song today. Um, I sang it uh, for the uh, concert prayers here a few months ago. And I figure since uh, it's the Easter season, we're getting, getting, great, getting ready for that glorious day when he arises. It says, By his wounds we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, by his wounds, we He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. Sing that with us. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. We are healed by your sacrifice in the life. our transgressions he was crushed for our sins the punishment that brought us peace was upon him by his wounds by his wounds we are healed sing it out we are healed by your sacrifice and the life that you gave we are healed By your grace we are saved, we are saved. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, by his wounds we are healed.
gentlemen could come forward for the offering. an example of our imperfectness. I don't know what is. Um, I encourage you to open the Bible if you have a Bible to uh, Jonah chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in your pew in front of you. Um, this is the final chapter in the jam-packed tiny book of Jonah. It's hard to believe, you know, the more I, the more I learn and the more I talk about Jonah that this fantastic book of the Old Testament is only 48 verses total in the whole book. Reading through some of Isaiah as we've been doing I found that there are several chapters in Isaiah that are more than 48 verses in the chapter. So, um, 
for all of its brevity, though, the book of Jonah teaches us a tremendous amount about our human nature, about our imperfections and our our blatant sinful nature. Um, I find it encouraging to think that even a prophet of the Lord can be so human, so so just like us. Anyway, let's start with uh, let's start with the Word of God. If you're able, turn with me to chapter of chapter four of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4, starting at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Before I start, I'd like to pray and ask for God's help. Dearly Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for giving me this opportunity to come and to, to preach your word to the people of our church, Father, and just be with me today and help your word come through me to them. And put me out of the way, Father, and just use me in a way to glorify you. Watch over these people, Father, and their families and friends and everyone else in this town, and just be with all of us, Father. Help those that are lost to find their way to you, and, and help us that are found our way to you, help others along the way, Father, and give us the courage and, and the strength to do that. In all things, let your will be done. That's the same in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what a roller coaster this short book is. D.A. <laughs> Carson starts the chapter on Jonah 4 in his commentary with this statement. The delight we might feel at the happy outcome of chapter 3 is completely lost on Jonah. Chapter 4 opens by completing the sketch of his character in such unfavorable colors that it is shocking. In doing so, however, the author puts in place an important element of his book's message that enables it to call the most self-assured reader to self-examination. During these sermons and, and then this reading of this uh, word this morning, have you seen yourself in Jonah? Have you ever wondered why God saved someone that you thought didn't deserve it? 
murderer that is on death row and has found Jesus. A drug addict that was begging for change on a corner and now has found his way into our church for morning service. It's so easy to judge that person and simply brush off their newfound Christianity as fake or too late. But are we not all sinners? Carson continues, those who see in Jonah only the antithesis of their own essentially irreproachable theology, or who assume that their knowledge of God has prevented mistakes and corruption of this magnitude, need to see, as we all do, that the ethic of chapter 4 is both a mighty deep and glorious height that must drive repentance and trust in divine forgiveness. Jonah suffers from something that I also struggle with, as I believe most of us do every day. Something that some would say is the backbone of all sin, pride. Jonah was a proud Jewish prophet. Being so, he felt that he knew who should be saved and who shouldn't. I think this is something that we can all relate to. As I have brought up in my other sermons on Jonah, and what I believe is the underlying point of this book, is that we as Christians tend to think that we should decide who is saved. Look with me at the Gospel of Matthew, beginning of chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1, reads, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let's stop there for a moment and think about that. What is Jesus telling us here? Is he saying that if we don't judge others, that we will not be judged? Of course not. It would be too easy, right? We all face judgment, each and every one of us. What he's saying is that none are sinless, therefore none should judge except he who is perfect and blameless, namely Jesus Christ himself. This truth becomes clearer in the next few verses, which are often quoted, but not nearly embraced enough. Continuing on in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 7, Starting at verse 3, Jesus continues, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. How many of us have quoted that set of verses to someone else? I know I have What's funny is that when we quote that verse, it's almost always as a self-defense of someone trying to hold us accountable for the log in our very own eye, proving that although we can quote the scripture, we either have no idea what it means or flat out don't care. Honestly, I'm not sure which is worse. It's interesting to note that in the, it says the log in your eye, but in, if you read the uh, in the Greek, the word is translated as being a load-bearing beam. So anyone that's done construction can imagine what it would be like to have a load-bearing beam like one of these sticking out of your eye. And here you are telling somebody they got a little, a little dust in their eye or something. Now I'm not saying to go around and never care about what our brothers and sisters are doing in their lives. Anyone that knows me knows that I place a ton of value in accountability. I'm a firm believer that the main thing missing for the lives of people who study the Bible religiously yet don't regularly come to church is 
accountability. As humans, it is impossible to hold ourselves 100% accountable. It takes others living around us closely and closely observing our lives to see the things that we are doing wrong and to point them out. For some of us, our spouses that do a really good job at that. And our kids are also very good at pointing out the things we do wrong. I believe Elisa corrected Justin's scripture reading four or five times during the... Anyway. While this sounds like it directly contradicts Jesus' command for us not to judge others, I believe when Jesus refers to judging someone, he means it as thinking you are above them or better than them. That is not mutual accountability. We are all sinners. We all make mistakes. We all do selfish things. We have to remember that and approach each other as equal sinners in an honest and loving way. Our kids are great at this. Just yesterday morning, while driving to Curtis's birthday, in the middle of a hurricane, it seemed like, my wife and I were arguing about how fast to go on the highway. And Layla from the back seat says, Y'all stop it, you sound just like us. Talk about an eye opener. We must learn to lean on each other to make sure that our walk in Christ is staying true. Imagine what a fellow believer would be saying to Jonah while he is sitting up on that hill waiting for the destruction of Nineveh. Our first application follows the same line of thought. In Jonah chapter 4, the first verse states, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Who is Jonah to be displeased? Who does he think he is to be angry at the creator of the universe? He did what God told him to do, and it worked. It worked amazingly. 120,000 people repented and came to Christ, came to God. Shouldn't he, as a prophet of God, have been amazed and exalted, exalted of God for his amazing kindness and compassion? An exponential reflection of the kindness and compassion that he himself had just recently shown Jonah, or he had just recently shown Jonah himself, Look with me at the epistle of Paul to the Romans. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Romans 9, 14 says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Jonah was actually hoping for the destruction of Nineveh, which becomes apparent later in the chapter when he goes up on a hill to watch. He wanted these people to die, and not only that, he wanted to watch it happen. Here Jonah is a prophet of God Almighty himself, one who was just saved by miraculous means and then traveled over 700 miles to come and preach the word of God. And yet he is ready to sit back and eat some popcorn, watching over 100,000 people burn to death. How twisted is that? Why is it so hard for us to see evilness and sin in our own hearts? The kindness of those among us are capable of atrocity. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
That's not just talking about all the people in town that decided not to come to church this morning. That's talking about us, the ones of us that are sitting here today. It's talking about me, about Justin and Albert, about Wayne, about Bree, even Jane. That is why accountability amongst church members is so paramount. We must make sure that we are staying as true as possible to the path that Jesus laid out for us. I'm telling you, loved ones, it is so easy to stray. I've recently finished reading the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, which on a side note I think everyone should read if you haven't read it. Amber, it's awesome, right? Um, it's a very challenging book. Uh, be ready if you do read it because it will tear down your assumed innocence like the Berlin Wall. This book consists of letters from an experienced demon named Screwtape to his nephew Wormwood, and every page shows how easily it is for Satan and his underlings to lead us away from God. We always see the cartoons of someone with an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other shoulder, both with input about decisions we make in our lives. I never realized until I started reading this book how true that is. God gives us free will to make our own choices. Satan tries to bend that will in order for us to stray. The main point of the book is to illustrate just how easily that can be accomplished. And I will tell you this, loved ones, it is easier than you can imagine. Which is why we must all remain strong in the faith and not be afraid to hold each other accountable. Take Jonah, for example. Here he is orchestrating one of the greatest repentance stories of history, and yet he feels like a total failure to the point that he is angry with God. This is a prophet of the Lord, doing the Lord's work, witnessing a miracle, and he is so full of pride that he would see these people being destroyed as a great victory. Would you be happier if all the Muslims in the world began to believe in the gift of grace through Jesus Christ, or if God simply wiped them off the face of the earth? What about murderers in prison? My brother recently spoke at a prison full of some of the worst criminals in the state of Texas. And when he finished, 21 of them came up and gave their lives to Christ. Now, do you think that Matt was angry with God for accepting their repentance? Of course not. It seems like such a foreign concept. Yet, that is where we are with Jonah. He would have been smiling from ear to ear as God rained fire and brimstone down from heaven, all because of his pride. In the next section, we'll hear a rant of a pouting prophet and God's simple answer. Look with me at verses 2 through 4 of Jonah chapter 4. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said? Is this, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? It's obvious that Jonah knew the power of our God, which is why he ran away in the first place. We see the same thing reflected in many other, many other parts of the Bible. Exodus 34, 6 states, The Lord passed before them and proclaimed, The Lord the God, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
And we also see this repeated in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, in a way that is amazingly similar to what took place in Nineveh. Joel 2, starting in verse 12, says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And look with me in the book of Nehemiah, one of the most dramatic examples of God's mercy. Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 16, says, But they, our fathers, acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to slavery in Egypt. But you are God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Obviously, Jonah knew of these things. He repeated them nearly verbatim to God himself. Being a prophet, he was presumably well-versed in the books of Moses. Jonah knew that if not for this very love and graciousness that God was showing the Ninevites, his own people, the people of Israel, would have been destroyed in the wilderness or at best led back into Egyptian slavery. Yet Jonah is unable to see beyond his hate for them. All he can think about is how much he wants them to die and face eternal judgment. Haven't we all been in Jonah's place before? A news story about a parent who abuses or even murders their own child. Hearing a story about a rape that took place, or something a little more uh, closer to home when someone cuts us off in traffic. We're human, we're not God. And it's painfully obvious every day. Even though we were created in His image, in a lot of ways we are the exact opposite of Him who made us. Most of us are quick to anger, and restricted with love, ready to see swift justice, sometimes without any solid evidence. I don't know about y'all, but I'm relieved that our eternal soul is judged by God and not by another human. The fact that Jonah was so upset by the possibility of God not destroying the city that he would rather die than continue to live shows the depth of his hate for these people. As we continue, we will see how Jonah reacted to God's question. Look at me with verses 5 through 8. Jonah 4, starting in verse 5, says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. What's going on here? Jonah prayed to God telling him how disappointed he was 
God, possibly showing these pagan Assyrians grace. And what does he do next? He goes outside the city and sets up a booth for himself to see what would happen. Jonah had done what the Lord commanded him to do. And he could have just started the long trek back home. 700 plus miles he had to walk. But he didn't. Instead, he goes out of the city, finds a nice spot up on a hill, builds himself a small shelter so that he can hang out and see what God is going to do to the people of Nineveh. The Bible doesn't tell us how long Jonah watched before the Lord appointed the plan to provide Jonah shade. But I think he had already sat there for most of the 40 days waiting to see what God would do. So while Jonah sat there in the midst of his hatred, waiting for the holy wrath of God to rain down on Nineveh, the only wrath that God sent was on Jonah himself in the form of a scorching east wind and blazing sun. The real question here is, did Jonah think that because he was angry with God, God would really change his mind and destroy the city? In my studies on this chapter, I found a quote from Dr. John Piper that helps relate Jonah's anger with our current state. Piper says, What gives so much force to the impulse of anger in such cases is the overwhelming sense that the offender does not deserve forgiveness. That is, the grievance is so deep and so justifiable that not only does self-righteousness strengthen our indignation, but so does a legitimate sense of moral outrage. It's this deep sense of legitimacy that gives our bitterness its unbending compulsion. We feel that a great crime would be committed if the magnitude of evil we've experienced were just dropped and we let bygones be bygones. We are torn. Our moral sense says this evil cannot be ignored, and the Word of God says that we must forgive. Have any of you experienced moral outrage? Heard about something on the news that was so terrible that it made you sick? Or possibly even something that happened to you personally? How would you feel if they were let go scot-free? How should we feel? I don't know how many of y'all know this, but um, about eight or nine years ago, um, my nephew was murdered by his dad. Uh, he was only a month old. And um, it was a terrible thing. Uh, we were all very, very uh, mad about it. And it was, that was before we started coming to church. We were didn't know what to do with this anger. And um, it took a long time. You know, it's interesting. My dad, I think, was the first one to, to put it in a God perspective. My, my sister had named uh, her son Christian, coincidentally. And um, it was a the situation she was a bad situation. And my dad was the first one that told us, that he feels like God sent Christian here to get Angel out of that situation. And once we started coming to church and learning about God's forgiveness and how we're expected to forgive, um, I was able to forgive him in my heart for what he did. I haven't forgiven him face to face yet, but it's just an example of, you know, it, that took me a long time. And um, all of us that were involved in that, all of my family, I think it's, it's something that's it's hard to get over, and it takes a long time to to see. Uh, but if you think about it, if 
you take the culmination of our lives and the sin that's every little sin, you know, hopefully, you know, none of us have done anything that um, atrocious, but if you take the culmination of our sin throughout our lives and add it all up, to imagine that God forgives us for all of that really helped me put in perspective that I should be able to forgive anybody for anything. Back to Jonah, it's possible that he thought that Assyrians, the Assyrians would backtrack on their repentance. Backtrack so quickly that God would go ahead and destroy the city at the end of the 40 days. Yet neither of these things happened, and God uses a simple plant and worm to impress the lesson on Jonah. I love how simply God illustrates his point when he could have just told Jonah, it's going to end up this way because I said so. How many times does the parents we just say, because I said so? I mean, how, how well does that work? <laughs> God uses a real-life illustration to make his point apparent. Jonah loved the plant just as God loves us all. Then God appointed that hungry worm to destroy what Jonah loved and on top of that, added the scorching wind and blazing sun that caused Jonah again to say that he would, would be rather for him to die than live. The application I'm trying to make here is just like a good parent, God uses a situation to illustrate his point. He does this for us still, and just like Jonah, it typically isn't until the point is made that we can see how our Father's divine plan was laid out. And just in case Jonah didn't see the bigger picture through his experience with the plant and that ravenous worm, God spells it all out for him in the last three verses of the book. Look with me and let's unpack the culmination of these amazing 48 verses in the Old Testament. Jonah 4, verses 9 through 11 say, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry for the, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? What a wonderful example for us all of our Creator also being our Father. He already made his point using the castor bean plant, an extremely hungry worm. But Jonah still didn't get it. So in his graciousness, he spells it all out for Jonah. All of the parents in here will be able to relate to this. Even when something happens to a kid that we think will surely teach them the lesson, we still end up having to explain it to them. When our oldest daughter, Lexi, was in junior high, uh, she started getting weak during basketball games. At one point, she nearly passed out, and we took her to the hospital and found out that she was hypoglycemic, which means that her blood sugar levels can drop dramatically if she's working or doing anything, you know, sports, anything that gets her heart rate up. It was scary for all of us, but um, including Lexi, she was very frightened when she, was, when she first found out, but... Of course, Lexi being Lexi wanted to keep playing sports and we couldn't slow her down. Not even a year or two later, she's in high school and we were having to pay attention, go to every game and pay attention to her and practices and watch for the symptoms for her because she would just keep going until we noticed her getting spotty or 
starting to shake, and then we would have to force her to eat a candy bar or something sometimes, even though she experienced the consequences, and yet we would still have to tell her, probably still have to now, that sometimes you need a candy bar. <laughs> you would think that the experience would have been enough to change her mind and to change her eating habits and to know the symptoms and to know what to look for. And yet, just as we are all human, she needed us as her parents to explain the situation to her several times, over and over and over. This all comes back to love. The book of Jonah contains layers and layers of God's love. God used Jonah to show his love to the pagan sailors in chapter 1. God shows his love for Jonah the first time by appointing a great fish to swallow him. Even when he was running from God and forced the Ninevites, or the pagan sailors, to throw him overboard when he could have just repented. This great fish swallowed him up and transported him back to the beach and just gently spit him out. And God shows his love for the Ninevites by sparing them after they repented. And finally, even though Jonah ran away and got angry enough to tell his creator to simply kill him out of pure hate for these people, God pours out his love on Jonah in the form of patience. For hundreds of years, people have wondered what happened after that cliffhanger of a statement by our Heavenly Father. Yet there's nothing else in the Bible that tells us what actually became of Jonah after this. All that we do know is that the book of Jonah ends with a curveball from God, and Jonah walks right into it. After Jonah admits that he is angry enough to die because of a plant being eaten by a worm, God brings the whole lesson to bear. And although most of this book portrays Jonah as the bad guy, the fact that Jonah wrote it down or told someone else about his experience and didn't spin it in a way to make himself look like the good guy proves that the lesson that God taught that day on the hill east of Nineveh to a pouting prophet really sank in. Jonah could have just walked back to Israel and proclaimed how his preaching out against Nineveh brought on a revolution of repentance so much so that God relented from the disaster that he had planned for them. It's very easy to imagine Jonah writing this account with himself as the hero, a prophet that saved the lives of 120,000 people. Yet he is brutally honest about what actually happened. Why? Why would he be so honest? Because at some point he realized what God did through him he wanted to give God the glory that he deserved. The lesson that God gave to Jonah probably didn't immediately sink in. It is very probable that he headed home sulking about God not destroying his enemies like he had done so many times before. It is apparent that at some point it dawned on him what God was showing him with the plant and the worm. Was it during the 700 mile walk home? Or after that, we will never know this side of heaven. But the fact that he gave us this story in such an amazingly truthful way says it all. I want you all to remember Jonah when you're giving your own testimony to others. Don't be afraid to give them the details that make you more human. And more importantly, the details that glorify God in your life. One of the worst things that we can do as Christians is portray ourselves others as ultra-righteous non-sinners. 
If we aren't honest with ourselves, how can we ever expect to bring others to Christ? As I wrap up this series on Jonah, I pray that through these 48 short verses, the Word of God has touched your heart in a way that drives you to pursue Him. I found this quote uh, from C.S. Lewis. I just I love this quote. It says, C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I think that says it all. When you've accepted Jesus into your heart and have been converted by it, this world takes on a completely different life. If you have not asked Jesus to take you over your life and live in your heart, please, I beg you, don't let another minute pass without doing so. None of us know when our time on this earth is in. Um, it says in the Bible, he will come like a thief in the night. As I've said in other sermons, don't let that don't let that coming be a, be a sad a sad night for you because even though you know you're going to heaven you, all you can think of is the people that you didn't take the time to tell about Jesus during this hymn of invitation come up to these steps and pray to God that he may become the master of your life I would love for you all to be transformed and start authoring your own transformation story let us pray Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jonah, Father, and for the story of your work in him and his life, Father. And just let us all see a little bit of ourselves in Jonah. Keep us from prideful interpretations of ourselves, Father, that make us feel like we know who is supposed to go to heaven and who is supposed to know you, Father, and that we know who deserves to know you. Give us the courage, Father, and the strength to tell others about you and to lead the lost to you. Be with everyone here and everyone in this small town, Father, that, that isn't thinking about you this morning and just help them to find a way to you, Father. We all love you so much. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Please stand. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to upon his promise just to know the saith the Lord Jesus Jesus how I trust him how I proved him more and more Jesus Jesus precious Jesus Oh, for grace to trust him more. I'm so glad I learned to trust him. Precious Jesus.
Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that he is with me, will be with me till the end. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Well, that concludes our service. We're glad you joined us today. We hope you have a blessed week and hope to see you all back here next Sunday. Mike, we appreciate that message you gave us. We're going to end out with, uh, I shall not be moved. I shall not be, I shall not be moved. I shall not be, I shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's planted by the water. I shall not be